welcome to Linux Action News, episode 196, recorded on July 5th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Well, hello, Wes. Let's do the news. System76 has released Pop! OS 2104 with their new Cosmic Desktop. Cosmic, which System76 says stands for Computer Operating System Main Interface Components, is their new experience on top of the GNOME shell. I like that backronym there. That's a good one. Computer Operating System Main Interface Components. System76 says the Cosmic Desktop is the result of user feedback that they collected from various sources and polling Pop! OS users, and it has been designed to be compatible with GNOME Shell 3.3.8. So in theory, it's portable to other distributions with the correct dependencies. As the name implies, Pop! OS 2104 itself is based on Ubuntu 2104, so that means it includes the Linux 5.11 kernel and all the goodies of that general Ubuntu release. What's the new experience like? Well, Cosmic uses a dock on the bottom of the screen by default. You may not love that it takes up the entire bottom of the screen by default, actually, but there's a little toggle if you want the more minimal version. Also, quite notably, it separates GNOME's activities overview into individually accessible workspace and application screens, and does that quite prominently both with icons in that new dock and with some stuff up in the top bar. So, I think this is a feature they want people to try and to play with. And notably, they're vertical workspaces, too. Indeed. And for you keyboard warriors out there, there's also a new keyboard-centric app launcher. They need a good name for that that doesn't sound like Launch, because their actual keyboard is called Launch. I'm confused already. (laughs) And then they have a keyboard-driven app launcher. But it's pretty great. When you first install Pop, one of the things that I like now with the cosmic layer on top is you get a couple additional setup questions that are really easy to go through. And anything that you decide right there in the beginning can easily be found in GNOME system settings later if you change your mind. Like, for example, I tried the full bar down at the bottom, but uh, ultimately I decided I wanted it on the side of my screen, and I didn't want it to go end-to-end. I just wanted it to take up as much space as the icons required. And I just kind of took a guess as to where that might be in GNOME system settings, and it was exactly where I expected it to be, and it was really simple to change that. But that launcher you mentioned, Wes, that is special. This might be one of my favorite launchers I've ever used. When you tap that super key, it pops right up, faster than when you would, say, traditionally see the GNOME overview come up. And then they have truly instant search results. So as you begin typing the application like you'd expect, it starts giving you answers. Each answer has a control plus a number that you can tap, and it'll immediately execute that application. And you can do a lot of the things that I love with KRunner on Plasma, but now you can do it on a GNOME-based desktop, which is nice because they've, they've done a really good job implementing it. Along with that, they've done a fantastic job of integrating gestures into the Cosmic experience. You know, like you can swipe four fingers right on the trackpad to open the applications overview. If you swipe four fingers left, it opens up the workspace overview. Four fingers down, you can go to a different workspace. Three fingers to switch between open applications. Like there's several gestures in there that you can work with. Um, And then, of course, baked in as well is their latest iteration of their tiling extension, which sits so at a pretty good sweet spot for me. My my only kind of complaint with it is I wish I could just turn it on for certain workspaces. Then that t- if I could have like tiling on workspace two and three, but workspace one was free floating or something like that. Oh man, that'd be the sweet spot. And maybe it'll get there one day. Yeah, I think it's still pretty early days for Cosmic. 
And its design choices and the way it works, I think, means there's some upsides and downsides. I really like that it's just a set of components that you can kind of have on or off individually and you could bring to your own desktops. But that does mean, you know, they're just building on top of GNOME. And I think that constrains and limits quite everything that they might be able to do, at least so far. It's especially nice to see that multi-touch gesture support you mentioned, because one thing that is quite notably missing from this release is GNOME 40, and especially some of that GTK4 GPU acceleration that we've come to love. But again, that's something that's somewhat constrained based on how Pop! OS works, right? It's building on top of Ubuntu, and you gotta wait for Ubuntu to catch up first. Yeah, and I suppose the idea might be get this built now while they're in the pre-LTS phase, and maybe it's easier to bring it to GNOME 40 than wait. Right, this is in many ways the time you have to flesh all this out, figure it out, and it's easy to criticize something that's new. We do plenty of that, but Sometimes you do have to put something out there before you can really start making it better. But even with the warts it has, I think Pop is starting to feel like its own unique experience. There's a bit of a question there, right? Because isn't it just Ubuntu and GNOME? But when you sit down in front of Pop OS 2104, it feels like something all its own. Although, if GNOME Shell in general isn't your thing, well, I don't think Cosmic will likely be for you. But if you're a Linux desktop nerd... It's definitely worth a look. And be sure to tune into recent episodes of Coder Radio for ongoing coverage of using Pop and Cosmic as a development workstation. Well, speaking of us longtime desktop Linux nerds, we've been reeling over what's happening to Audacity. You may have noticed there's a pitchfork shortage this week. That's because the Muse group that now owns Audacity has got everyone upset again. Now, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, it all starts about two months ago. Audacity was acquired by the Muse Group. They're known for their MuseScore app. They also run the Ultimate Guitar website. Since their purchase of Audacity, they have introduced a data collection policy that greatly upset the community. They introduced a CLA that had vague justification and was also quite alarming. And this week, things really came to a peak. Some headlines have summed it up as Audacity is now spyware. But of course, the truth really lies somewhere in between. In a privacy notice update, the Muse group outlined what users can expect in Audacity 3.0.3. The multinational company updated the policy stating they collect OS version, user IP, CPU, error messages, and, quote, any data necessary for law enforcement. As to who those law enforcement agencies might be, their policy reads, All your data is stored on our servers in the European Economic Area. However, we are occasionally required to share your personal data with our main office in Russia and our external counsel in the USA. Additionally, they state that they might share your data with anyone they classify as a third party, advisors, or potential buyers. That same page contains a boilerplate attempt to prevent kids under the age of 13 from using Audacity in their privacy policy, which in my opinion, is a violation of the GPL. And as you would expect, however, somehow surprising to the Muse group, there were a lot of angry reactions all over the open source community. Users on GitHub and Reddit and many other places are calling to fork Audacity, which seems like it's actually picking up traction. We're probably going to see one of these actually gain adoption, which we'll keep an eye on for you. Yeah, really, this entire privacy policy reads kind of just like some legal boilerplate you know, something that might be considered perfectly normal 
or at least, you know, what you see day to day in the commercial software world. But of course, that kind of stuff is deemed pretty invasive and rude in the free software community. Especially since Audacity represented a set of ideas and philosophies about software and how that software should respect its users, who that software is for. From what it looks like on the outside, the Muse Group doesn't really seem to get that. As we record on this Monday morning, Daniel Ray, the head of strategy at the Muse Group, posted a clarification of the privacy policy and essentially confirmed the boilerplate nature of the language and said he believed the strong reaction was due largely to unclear phrasing in the privacy policy. Yeah, and then he goes on to say that they are in the process of rectifying that. And he makes some solid attempts to walk back the harshness of the language in the privacy policy and tries to put context around the term personal data and its relation to the GDPR. Um, What I don't read in there is any correction or update regarding the age restriction of Audacity. And again, in my opinion, that's possibly a GPL violation. It would be nice to have seen them address that since a GPL violation could be a pretty big deal, especially if they managed to do one in two months of owning the thing. Well, the other part, too, I think is Whether or not it is violating the letter of the GPL or exactly which version of the software this applies to, since it's on their actual website and not the GitHub repository, at least to my knowledge, it certainly violates the spirit. And Audacity is widely used for educational purposes for children in schools. So it's really a shame if they think this software is not intended for children, because at least up to now, it's been a huge benefit. Yeah, it seems like it's fork time, Wes. Um, And it seems like the community's language and tone has has shifted to a resignation that, yeah, it's just unfortunate that it's fork time. Uh, When I looked around GitHub this morning, just before we recorded, I saw several (laughs) that have already launched. But, you know, I I wonder, Wes, if this isn't going to end up like the OpenOffice, LibreOffice situation, where the original brand name of OpenOffice is so strong that it continues on, even with slow, lackluster updates, people still are recommending you go get OpenOffice, and people are still downloading it by the hundreds of thousands. Um, it's possible like, you know, Audacity is so established at this point and p- people that want to grab it, like schools and whatnot, they're not really following the, these news stories. Exactly. And there doesn't seem to be any mechanism in place to control access. And at least for some of the telemetry here, that's all still configured behind build time flags. So much like OpenOffice, you imagine that there's going to be distributions and things that they ship the regular brand of Audacity, even if they've perhaps got both in the repo. Yeah, and that never is really a great place to be in, where distribution starts stripping out things that the upstream developers are including. Uh, And if they include this stuff, I'm going to just start using Audacity with a flat pack, and I will just disable network access for that flat pack. That is an option. Um, But I would much rather just have something that the community maintains that can take the GPL bits of Audacity's improvements that work and not be associated with the Muse group because it's it's obvious to me at this point that the Muse group doesn't really even appreciate or understand what they have. And in my opinion, they have destroyed their relationship with the community. When you read through the GitHub comments, even on the retraction, it's all faith is lost because every time it's been this total screw up from the introduction of the project and how it was introduced and how they handled that from the communication of the CLA and the telemetry information, each time the Muse group is shocked and surprised that people could possibly be upset, that a community made up predominantly developers and computer users and geeks could be upset by a privacy policy that is the exact kind of privacy policy that upsets developers and computer geeks. Like they're just totally out of touch. And that doesn't seem like the right group that's in charge of what used to be 
and I hate to use the past tense, what used to be the quintessential free audio editor. It's, it's really a shame. And amidst all of these little scandals, we also haven't necessarily seen the sort of investment and improvements in Audacity that I think many of us were hoping might sort of make any of these changes worth it in the long run. Yeah, that's a great point. It wouldn't have been fantastic to see some of the improvements land first and then some of these extreme changes land second um, and maybe communicated better. Uh, In the meantime, though, it doesn't really come into effect for you. It's not until the next release of Audacity that this all comes into effect. The current version, 302, does not contain data collection or has any kind of networking features added to it yet. In 303, they intend to ship it with data collection and networking features that will report home your IP, your CPU information, etc. They hold the IP for 24 hours because for some reason they need to know when you're converting a WAV file to an MP3. More bad news. Announced last summer and starting this August, Google will require that new Play Store apps will have to be published using something known as the Android App Bundle format. If you're not familiar, and I certainly wasn't, the Android App Bundle is Android's new official publishing format that replaces APKs, at least for developers, when submitting apps to the Play Store. Google says it should offer a more efficient way to build and release your app. It works essentially like this. Instead of building a bunch of different APKs and uploading those to Google's store after signing them yourself, now you'll just upload the one Android app bundle format. Google will generate a whole bunch of device-specific APKs and then sign all of those itself. Right, so the Google Play Store is doing the signing, and they're still distributing APKs to the phones, but developers will not be producing APKs anymore. Uh, I think some people are a little uneasy about this because the APK is in open format, and it's also easier to sideload, say, an APK than an app bundle, as far as I could tell. Uh, But this requirement is only going to apply to new apps, according to Google, And they're going to do the back-end work to actually generate APKs and then make it available for you as a developer to download that APK from the Play Store if you want a local copy of it. But I think the question we had was, how does this impact, say, F-Droid? I think there will be some confusion for sideloaders because one of the features of these app bundles is you can have sort of dynamic parts. Like you might have an optional feature for your app that only gets loaded on some platforms or downloaded later after the fact. But it sounds like If you don't have all the required components, you might get some failures during sideloading. But for actual F-Droid itself, it's almost like Google Play is becoming more like F-Droid because while F-Droid has only open source apps, they actually build all of the APKs and sign them on F-Droid. I didn't realize that until we looked into this, but you submit your app as source code. They do the building, they do the signing with a few exceptions. And there are some well-known exceptions out there. But this, uh, this is the way it's been done for a while. Now, the Play Store is kind of changing to this model. And um, I still don't like it. I know there's just something about the App Bundle that I just, I feel like it is, it's just adding one more layer to making it a little bit trickier to get outside the Play Store. In some ways, this reminds me of AMP, where there are some benefits out there, faster load pages, smaller asset sizes, that are beneficial for some pages, the biggest pages, the most complicated pages. I think that's probably true of app bundles for some applications. But there are real downsides. There are costs here. And is anyone really weighing those? Doesn't feel like it. 
Linode.com slash land. Go there to get $100 in credit and support the show. No matter what skill level you're at or what technology stack you use, Linode can help your ideas come to life on the web. And if you ever have any trouble, Linode has the best customer support in the business. Awarded by the people and along with hundreds of guides and tutorials, you're going to get up and going in no time. Linode feels like part of our team. Behind the scenes, it's what makes JB possible. If it weren't for these spots, you'd never know that Linode is making all this infrastructure hum because it just runs. It's fast, it's reliable, and it's making your experience great. Linode's been easy to use and has a powerful cloud dashboard. With S3 compatible object storage, cloud firewalls, and simple one-click application deployments with their super fast networking, they are their own ISP, and so much more, you'll find there's tons of uses of that $100 credit. So go over there to linode.com slash LAN and get that credit and support the show. Their one-click Minecraft server lets you specify features like NPCs, game mode, all the critical little things you need to set up all in one nice, easy-to-use screen. And you know, 66% of companies save money working with a mix of alternative cloud providers instead of just relying on one big old hyperscaler. Linode can be part of your multi-cloud strategy. That's why you got to check it out for yourself. Linode.com slash LAN. Linux.ting.com. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring this episode of the Linux Action News. If you're sick of overpaying for cell service, go see how much you could save and then take 25 bucks off of that at Linux.ting.com. Ting is an MVNO or a mobile virtual network operator. That means Ting mobile customers get the same access as the customers of, say, the big networks, but with better customer service and at a lower cost. With Ting Mobile, you get the same coast-to-coast coverage as you would with the big guys, but you just pay less for it. And Ting's plans are way simpler and straightforward. In fact, I love their new Set 12 plan, which gives you 12 gigs of data with unlimited talk and text for just 35 bucks a month. And a good family plan is hard to find. But with Ting's Flex plans, they address this particular pain point in a way only Ting can. You add as many lines to your account as you need, you just pay 10 bucks per line. Every line gets unlimited texts and calls, and every line shares that same pool of data. And if you need 2, 20, or a lot more gigs, Ting's got a perfect plan for you. And every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage, plus the freedom of no contracts ever. It's simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone works on Ting, so just head over to linux.ting.com, check your current phone, create an account, pick the plan that's right for you, and then Ting will send you a SIM card. You pop that in, you get activated in minutes. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's brand new plans. The next generation of Ting Mobile is here. Go see how much you could save, and then take 25 bucks off of that at linux.ting.com. On June 27th, Linus Torvalds released Linux 5.13. And as expected, the development cycle turned out to be a busy one. The AMD GPU driver alone is almost 2.4 million lines of code. But never fear, there were some things that also got cleaned up and removed. And there's still a lot of patches that are landing as a result of the University of Minnesota patch review. LWN reports that 5.13 was supported by a minimum of 232 different employers, and a record-setting 2,062 developers. Believe it or not, this is the first time more than 2,000 developers have participated in a single release cycle. And some notable features for 5.13 include support for Apple's M1 Silicon Max, at least initial early support, the beginnings of support for wireless wide-area networks, 
and improve support for the advanced configuration and power interface spec on laptops. Well, Microsoft's been busy with 5.13. Their Azure Network Adapter was merged, a tool which makes it easier to build hybrid networks, as well as more support for their line of Surface laptops, and some interesting early work to support Linux as an ARM64 Hyper-V guest. We've also seen plenty of enhancements to RISC-V support and a change long in the making, the merging of the Landlock Linux security module. This is a big one, Wes. Landlock is a stackable Linux security module, and it aims to make it possible to create safe, secure sandboxes for unprivileged programs in addition to the existing system-wide access controls, hence the stackable part of this. This kind of sandbox is expected to help mitigate the security impact of bugs or even malicious behaviors in user space applications. Landlock is inspired by SecComp BPF, but instead of filtering syscalls and their raw arguments, a Landlock rule can restrict the use of kernel objects directly, things like file hierarchies, making it simple to say, restrict the directories a program is allowed to access. If this sounds familiar to security models on other operating systems, well, that's because it is. Landlock was directly inspired by efforts like XNU's Sandbox, FreeBSD's Capsicum, and OpenBSD's Pledge. Now, you might be thinking, why not use some of the mechanisms that the kernel already provides? Well, the Linux Security Module subsystem, or LSM, offers mechanisms like SE Linux and SMAC, but those are really meant for administrators and not necessarily end users. Not only can their configuration be complex, but the critical part here is that those policies require system-level privileges to modify. Often you have to be root, where Landlock is built for end-users with the goal of working for unprivileged accounts. Of course, with the release of kernel 5.13, the merge window for 5.14 is now open. Among the features slated for inclusion already are Raspberry Pi 400 support, updates to handle some recent or upcoming x86 CPUs from Intel and AMD, and support for more GPUs, including Qualcomm's Adreno 660. Well, it's not all perfect in 5.13 land, though. Just a quick note, there's also a bug that's biting people right now that you should know about. Dave Jones reported the following. This made it into 5.13 final and completely breaks NFSD for me. Existing mounts on clients hang, as do new mounts from new clients. Rebooting the server back to RC7 everything recovers. Now, the good news is Afix is already merged, and it's an RC1 of Linux 5.14, and it was really caught before any distributions shipped this thing at scale anyways. What went wrong? Well, a previous commit optimizing bulk page allocations added a bug where the allocation would appear to fail if already allocated. Thankfully, that meant the fix was just a simple one-line change. Really just a bit of a PSA for everyone before we leave this week. We started this episode with the release of POP 2104, and we are wrapping this week with the end of life for Ubuntu 2010. It's true. Official support for Ubuntu 2010 ends on July 22nd, 2021. We wanted to let you know so you can make some plans if you need to. Yes, indeed. Perhaps a good chance to try something new, and we hope you make plans to listen every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. We have two meetups coming up, one in Denver and one in Salt Lake City. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. 